0: Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan from Mount Gambier, Australia, and this is my quest to teach the whole New Testament as deeply and helpfully as I can. So grab your Bible and a beverage of choice, and let's take a few intentional minutes together in the deep end. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. Our passage for this episode is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 36. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves, because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. By now, some of us may be trying to track Jesus' movements a little bit, because he's done a bit of travel over these last few passages and episodes. He was most likely stationed in and around Capernaum, while the disciples were on their various short-term trips. When they return... And when he's heard about John the Baptist's death, he jumps on a boat and heads to the shore near a place called Bethsaida, Julius. This is actually just a few miles, but the boat trip makes for a relatively secluded mode of transport in comparison to walking along the beach. But it's at this place that we hear that the crowd has been tracking him anyway, and Jesus feeds the 5,000. Following this, they are told to make another east-to-west crossing across to the Gennesaret valley. The 4,000 is still to come at this point. I presented them together in the last episode because the points Jesus was making with them were clearly linked together. This passage tells us that Jesus finally gets the seclusion he initially sought at the start of the last episode. He has been able to take the time out to grieve the death of John the Baptist and to separate himself for a significant prayer time. He would no doubt be grappling with the painful death that was now less than a year away. For Jesus, after John's martyrdom, this whole suffering saviour deal just got real. And he would have needed some solid time with the Father to work that through. If you add to this the pressure of the ministry he'd just done, as well as the temptation he would have been going through when the crowd wanted to make him king, you might be able to see the weight of burden on Jesus' shoulders all of a sudden. If the cross was on the horizon, the easy way might have looked good right there. But it was prayer alone that lifted the burdens that Jesus was carrying. If Jesus needed that, how much more so do we? And while all that is going on, the disciples have taken off again at the request of Jesus. But the conditions are pushing their little craft further south than they were planning. It was getting late when Jesus fed the crowd, so it is certainly late evening as they push off the shore in their boat. But it's here that the story takes some amazing twists and turns that are worth looking at and being challenged by. So here goes. First, we have a storm, but we have a storm with Jesus in it. If I was one of these first disciples, I'd be asking some questions round about now, like, Why does Jesus always make us take the boat out in storms? We've read about one storm already, the one that occurred with Jesus asleep in the boat with them as they traveled towards the Decapolis region where a demon-possessed man in desperate need was going to be meeting them. As they made that approach, the disciples were able to get a glimpse of who Jesus actually was. In their understanding, only one person had the power to call the elements of the weather to submission, and as Jesus does just that, the disciples were left wondering if God was somehow actually in the boat with them in a more tangible way than they were accustomed to. With Jesus there, the answer to that question was, of course, yes. In the last episode, Jesus revealed more of who he was. By feeding the 5,000 in Bethsaida, he'd made his position of Messiah just a little bit clearer, even if he still resisted the people's response of wanting to coronate him. And following that reveal, the disciples are sent to sea to encounter yet another storm. Could there be a reason for that? Well, perhaps there is. One of the key things that we see in both storm situations is the place of Jesus in them. He was in the boat with the disciples the first time, and this time he was actually walking on the water despite the turmoil of the surroundings. One thing is clear for the disciples then and now. In any storm, Jesus remains close and he remains in control. Jesus is in fact God in the flesh. The wind and the waves obey him and he operates in full control despite the unsettling times we may be experiencing. It's so important to remember that in all we do and all we experience in life, Jesus remains above it all. So we have a storm with Jesus in it, and next we have a response with Christ in it. There is a mixed bag of responses in that little boat, isn't there? The first response is one of panic. And when they see the figure out on the water, they think it's a ghost. There are people who think this shows how superstitious this bunch of Galileans were, but I'm not so certain. There used to be a joke about an old Texan who was asked whether he believed in ghosts or not. And he was said to have replied, I never believed in them until I saw one. And these guys were probably in that same place, trying to work out what it was they were seeing. Ancient Jewish thought associated the depths of the sea with the grave, and to have a human-like figure floating on top of stormy water emerging out of the darkness in the early hours of the morning would be quite a frightful sight if you've never seen it before. Remember, it's raining heavily, the moon is hidden, the storm is feeding their fears, and the elements are distorting their view of who and what is out there. In the hours before dawn, like it is, their bodies and their minds would be at their weakest and most fatigued point. To these disciples, a ghost might seem like the only real conclusion. Nothing could be real in those conditions, surely. But then the blurry and semi-hidden image calls out and identifies himself as Jesus and tells them not to be afraid. What's a disciple to do when they come across something so unique like this? Well, for Peter, doing something meant going out to where he was. Imagine the dynamics of that. The figure is unclear, and all you have is a voice. But you also see what he's at work doing, and something deep within you wants to be doing what he's doing right now. Jesus is in the storm, but not being consumed by it. He's got all the elements in his control, and there is no sense of fear in anything he is doing. Everything in Peter wants to do the same thing. And by now, why shouldn't he? The disciples had been with Jesus just over a year, and their discipleship walk was all about learning and doing what their rabbi had been doing. They had been sent out by Jesus and authorized to do miracles from village to village in the name of Jesus, and they came back with amazing reports. They had been instrumental in a miracle of feeding the crowds only hours prior to this situation. All they knew thus far was that Jesus was training them to do ministry that looked just like His. Could that extend to walking on water as well? Well, there was only one way to find out, wasn't there? So Peter calls out, Jesus, if you're out there, can I be out there too? Jesus' response is, sure, come on out. Jesus doesn't say anything about the elements of weather or the risk Peter might put himself under. He doesn't tell him to stay in the safety of the boat until he got there. Jesus actually relishes the brash faith of this disciple and just says, yep, I'm out here. Come and join me. The only reason this whole adventure goes astray is when Peter actually realizes what he's doing and second guesses the voice that he heard. The initial joy would have been amazing. Peter's eyes are firmly fixed on the blurry figure out on the sea as he takes that first step out of the boat and he puts his foot on the water. He's not dipping his toe, but actually expecting the water to hold the little bit of weight he puts on it. Imagine the rush that kicked in as he felt the water hold firm. His eyes are still fixed on the blurry figure as he puts both feet out and as he begins to take those first steps. But then he gets inside his own head. Consider the self-talk roundabout now. Hang on, this can't happen. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I shouldn't be out here. It's not safe. What was I thinking? Maybe the figure in the sea that sounded like Jesus isn't getting as clear as he initially hoped. Maybe he was further away than he anticipated. Maybe he heard wrong. Come on out to where I am can easily be mistaken for stay put, right? Peter's fixed gaze drops from the voice and the presence and locks onto the circumstances instead. And immediately, instead of walking above those things, he begins to be overwhelmed by them. And right here, we see Peter actively sabotage his own faith walk. And don't we all do that sometimes? We have flashes of brilliance in this faith walk, where we see the turmoil around us, but despite that turmoil, we see and hear Jesus clear enough to take a leap of faith. Almost immediately, it yields good results. Until we get that silly notion that we shouldn't be making the progress we're actually making. The circumstances dictate otherwise, so how is this even happening? We can sabotage our character this way. The turmoil is what comes with personal change. There is turmoil when we try to rise above our anger issues, our addictions, our bad habits, our poor attitudes, our treatment of people, improving our personal integrity, the list goes on. There is the initial joy when we step out, and it's not long before we get to see some clear results. It's clear to you and others that you are rising above your circumstances and your eyes are fixed on Jesus as you do that. The writer of Hebrews says to live that way, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, right? But we also can sink when we take our eyes off of Jesus in that time. Maybe we're giving ourselves too much credit for the changes in our lives. Maybe we think we're undeserving of such a privileged position in front of Jesus like that. Maybe people are pointing out the turmoil so much that the voice of Jesus is simply getting duller. We can sabotage our calling and mission this way too. There is turmoil all around the relative safety of our little figurative boats, and it's sometimes hard to see where Jesus really is in amongst all that. But an irresistible voice is calling us to do something. So we step out, and again, it seems to be working. Our missional efforts appear to be effective, and we feel like we're right on track in what the Lord is calling us to do. But then we can second guess the voice. We might doubt who we are in God. We might ask ourselves, Who am I or who are we to be doing this sort of thing? We might be getting voices from back in the boat who see that it's working. But feed your doubts anyway. In the end, we choose what we do with the call to step out. We can fix our gaze on Jesus or we can sabotage ourselves by looking at the turmoil instead. A Christward gaze keeps us above it all. A gaze that focuses on the turmoil or even back to the boat will cause us to sink and the turmoil will overwhelm us. Thankfully, though, in this passage, that sinking sensation makes Peter realize what he'd lost sight of. His immediate call is back to Jesus, save me, and immediately Jesus is right there pulling him up out of the waves. The blurry figure becomes clear, and they finish the exercise together. It then becomes really clear that Peter had not made a mistake. He didn't hear, stay put, after all, it was a clear call to come. This passage shows absolutely no rebuke from Jesus about doing something unsafe or reckless, because at the end of the day, doing what Jesus clearly calls us to do can never be interpreted as reckless. Jesus is certainly disappointed in part here, but it's nothing to do with the action Peter took. Risk is stepping into turmoil when we haven't seen or heard Jesus in it. Faith is stepping into turmoil with those two things in place. If our focal point is Jesus and we have his presence to fix our gaze on, our actions classify as faith. If we have no Jesus focus, we will end up taking unordained risk. Peter's action here is faith, not risk. Until he shifted focus and faith gave way to fear. It was this part that Jesus corrects in the attitude and actions of Peter. The rebuke is clear here. I called you, but then you doubted. You saw me, but then you looked away. You rose above the turmoil. Then it overwhelmed you. All because of where you were looking in the midst of a tumultuous time. But following all that, we then have a revelation with Christ in it. Would you consider with me a couple of verses in the Psalms? Psalm chapter 18 verse 16 says this, He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. Psalm 69 verses 1 to 3 says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me, I am worn out, calling for help, my throat is parched, my eyes fail, looking for my God. These Psalms came to life that day for Peter and the disciples who remained in the boat. The Lord pulled out one of their own, and as they all board the boat, the response is nothing but worship to Jesus. Note the title they give him here, and note that this is the first documented time. Surely this is the Son of God. All of a sudden, in the eyes and understanding of his disciples, Jesus was once again more than a mere rabbi. The disciples would never do the unthinkable of even trying to offer worship to a mere rabbi, and neither would a true rabbi accept it. Only God was worthy of worship, and anything less... Would be idolatry. Any good Jew knew that. The disciples fell in worship of Jesus in the boat that night, and Jesus did not stop them. It was getting clearer once again to them Jesus was, in fact, God. Both storms, this one in addition to the one in episode 42, have brought the disciples to this conclusion. In the first one, they had to know that the one who claimed to be stronger than the strong man could live up to his claims. They were about to come face to face with perhaps the strongest demonic episode they had ever seen, and they had to be convinced that Jesus was stronger. Calming the storm on the way there and bringing the elements of the weather under his command certainly cemented that fact for them. Jesus' divinity by then was starting to become clearer. In this second instance, the disciples got to see this literally in greater depth. This had to lead them to a confession of faith in who he truly was. It had to lead them to unabandoned worship and devotion to him. They had to see him as divine, and they needed to be committed to the cause that Jesus was soon to give them, because what was waiting on the shore in Gennesaret and beyond was going to be really interesting. There would suddenly be greater challenges to Jesus, and there would be a season where the authorities would get more aggressive in trying to trip him up. Within moments of landing at the shore, Jesus would be saying the words, I am the bread of life, and you need to partake of me to inherit eternal life. Within a short time, the crowds of followers would be decimated as they counted the cost of following Jesus and the opposition was going to be intensified. Before all that, the disciples needed to learn to fix their gaze despite the turmoil they would soon face. Peter learned that lesson as he joined Jesus in the storm. So, as this episode draws to a close, let me ask you some reflective questions. Is Jesus calling you out of the figurative boat in one way or another? If he's calling, Your actions are done in faith, not risk. And are your eyes fixed on Jesus, the voice that calls in the midst of life's turmoil? Or are there elements of sabotage going on? Jesus is in the midst of the turmoil, but clearly above it all. And you can be out there with him too if your gaze is fixed on Christ and not the craziness all around you. Remember, friend, Jesus is God in the flesh. If anyone can rise above the storm, it's him. Being in the turmoil with him is actually far safer than staying put in the humanistic structure of life's figurative boat. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about this podcast and other ministries I'm involved in, go to my new website, www.ministryinthedeepend.com.au. You can also find me on Facebook, Instagram and even YouTube. So please like, follow, subscribe, connect and comment wherever you can. i look forward to catching up next time. See you then.